right. Well, really, really good to be with everybody today. I want to welcome everybody gathered across all of our locations and online. And if you got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and find 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. And uh, I don't know if any of you can relate to me, but uh, I have never been a very good test taker. Like, I'm just not very good at taking tests, or maybe a better way to say it is I'm not very good at being tested. Uh, I remember when I was growing up, like in high school and college, like the most stressful week of the year was finals week, because I just wasn't very good at taking tests. And the final exam was so much of your overall grade. And I, uh, this will kind of show you, you know, what kind of a student I was. I would kind of run the numbers and figure out what is the lowest possible grade I can get on the test. Some of you can relate, right? That, that makes me feel good. In order to pass the class, like that's the kind of high bar this academic scholar was setting, right? Just what's the lowest possible grade that I can get? Um, when I took my driver's test for the first time, I failed because I ran a red light. Like that'll do it, right? You just, and, and, what, and the context of that wasn't that I was in a rush. It was that I was at a red light and, you know, you can turn left on a uh, uh, you can turn left at a green light. Uh, let me get this straight. Yeah, being tested. So you, you can be at a red light. The light turns green. Then you can kind of yield and go. And I, I was at the red light, and the and instructor said, turn left. He didn't say, hey, wait till the light turns green. And turn left. He goes, turn left. So I just turned left. And, I, it, and he goes, you failed. Like right there, like you failed. Uh, after uh, here, uh, over the past couple of months, after about a 20-year break, I've recently picked up the game of golf again because apparently I like want some more aggravation and, you know, agony in my life. And uh, I've been taking like golf lessons, you know, and just trying to figure this all out. And, and so it, I got put to the test. This past Monday, I played in a charity golf scramble. And um, the three guys that were in my foursome are really, really good. And I am not. And uh, every single tee box felt like a test that I was failing. You know, it was just awful. Like I'd get up there and, you know, they would crush it. And they would say like, oh, man, great shot. Good lie, good lie. I don't even know what that means. Good lie. And then I would get up there on the tee box and whiff it, and it would just be awkward silence. It just felt like I was failing every single time. I don't know about you guys. Uh, when the pressure's on, like I'm just not very good at taking the test or being tested. And this is why. I'm going to be very, very honest with you. Every time the Bible mentions um, uh, something called Judgment Day, and I'm not talking about it had nothing to do with Arnold Schwarzenegger or the Terminator movies, but this thing, this day that the, that the scriptures mention where you and I will stand before God and we will give an account for the way in which we live our lives. Like that has always made me like really, really nervous. And I think it should make all of us a bit nervous because at very best, that should be sobering. Like that I, that I know what God has called me to and then I know how far short I've actually fallen from that. And the Bible says that we'll stand before God one day to give an account of that. Uh, Jesus uh, mentions it that day in Matthew 7. And he says, not everybody who stands before God and says, Lord, Lord, uh, will, will I acknowledge. And they'll come back, and I'll put this in today's vernacular. They'll come back and they'll say, well, Lord, like we prayed a prayer. We raised our hand. We filled out a card. We walked an aisle. We, we listened to Caleb. Like, like we volunteered in kids' ministry, a.k.a. pediatric purgatory. Like we did that for years. And, and he's going to say, yeah, but, but I didn't know you. Like you hear what he's saying. Like we can do a lot of things for him and believe all of the right things and check the boxes. What he is after is a relationship. 
Now, uh, we've been in this series in 1 John, and one of the characteristics of John's writing, both in his gospel, which is found earlier in the New Testament, and then in his epistles, which are found later, is that John has a tendency to write. In so one of the characteristics is that he uses words of sharp contrast in order to make his point. And so John will, his favorite was light and darkness. But he also writes about things like sin and holiness and grace and truth and the justice of God and the mercy of God. And most of the time we are all about the extremes, but John holds things in tension. Now, John writes, and we've seen this, if you've been joining us for this series that we've been in, in 1 John, is that he writes to give us assurance and conviction at the same time. So um, a conviction that brings about this uh, life change, this tension of, of the two. John wants to reassure us and reassure us, and he wants to convict us of sin. So in chapter 4, John is going to talk about, he's going to mention Judgment Day. You're gonna, we're going to see it in the passage here in just a minute. But here's what John does. John wants us to be confident on the Day of Judgment. In other words, Judgment Day does not have to mean Doomsday. It's this idea that we can stand before God with confidence. Confidence in what? Not because of anything that I've done. Not because I've been able to achieve or uh, um, obtain a certain status with God. I said this a few weeks ago, that salvation is a standing that we have before God, not an achievement. And so John in our passage today is going to give us four what I call assurances of how to be confident on Judgment Day. So if you're taking notes, I just want to encourage you to maybe have a pen ready, jot a couple of things down. And that's mostly just for you to kind of go back through and kind of review it. Uh, four assurances. So we're going to pick up in our passage today, starting off in verse 1 of chapter 4. He's going to, he says, dear friends. He's actually going to say that over and over and over again in, in this passage because he knows what he's writing is convicting. And he says, hey, dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. Notice that Spirit is capitalized. Um, you must test them to see if the Spirit, now notice there, it's lowercase. They have comes from God. And then he says this sentence that can be um, a bit concerning, but we're all, we all know it's true. There are many false prophets in the world. So what was going on then, it's always important to know what was happening then before we um, apply it accurately to today. What was happening then was that there was these false prophets just kind of rising up within the church, teaching things that were not consistent to the faith. And John wants them to be aware of it. Now that's uh, still going on today. And there's so much content. In fact, um, we have more access to content. And I'm not even just talking about sermons, but podcasts and audiobooks and influencers and there's all this content that is constantly coming at us and discipleship is where we are formed into the content we consume like there's there's no such thing as like just passively receiving content that whatever it is we're consuming, listening to, receiving, that that is forming us. The word there is formation. It's forming us into something or someone. And John says we've got to be really like um, conscientious of that. We've got to be discerning of that. And I know that it used to be like, you know, you get in, the only sermon that you listen to is the, 
you know, you get in the car and you drive to a physical church building and listen to somebody deliver a sermon. Now um, we've got access to all kinds of, of preaching. And, and not only do we have to be discerning about real life communicators, uh, now we've got AI to deal with. And chat GPT, and like all the, in fact, my communications team came to me just a few weeks ago and said, we just want you to be aware of the fact that we are already kind of putting into place like what, it, what we might do if somebody like puts together like a digital version of you from AI making you say things that you never said. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, like wow, like it just blows my mind. So we've got to be super discerning. That's the primary point that, that John is making in this passage. Now, there's another thing that he's saying, and, this goes, and I want to draw your attention back to the fact that the first time he used the word spirit, he capitalizes it. The second time, he doesn't. So the first time, he is referring to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that is within us. And so he says, when you're listening to somebody teach, now the same would be true for our lives as well. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's not just the truth that you say, but then he says this, pay attention to the life that they live. That's the lowercase s. That's the spirit by which they carry themselves. This is what Paul mentions to the Galatians, the fruits of the spirit. Uh, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So in other words, it's, it's simply this. Does the way I live my life align to the truths that I say I believe? It's, it's the idea that... Um, uh, man, I, I just have to tell you guys, like I know like how heavy of a task like I have on a weekly basis of just what I might call rightly handling the word of God. And to know that I don't want to ever, ever pretend to stand on this stage acting like I've got it all together. That I want to be consistently, I want to be the same person off the platform that I am on. And this is what John is urging all of us towards, this consistency, this authenticity in the way that we live our lives. He's going to get more specific in verse 2. He says, this is how we know. Like, how do we know uh, if we're following af- after God? He's, how, do, how do we know if they have the uppercase S spirit of God? And then he, he starts here, and then he's going to move on from it. He starts with, if a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, uh, the fancy word for that is incarnation, God came to us, that person has the spirit of God. But if somebody claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist. And I don't have time to fully unpack the theology around all this. Just notice that it's capitalized. So he's talking about a singular figure that rises up in the end days that's Antichrist. That's exactly what that means. But earlier in John's writing, he actually says, um, lowercase a, Antichrists in the plural. So there's Antichrist. There's also Antichrists, uh, many that are against Jesus, same as there is a capital S, Holy Spirit, and then there is, are the spirits, or there's the spirit by which we carry ourselves. He says, as you heard, is coming into the world, and indeed is already here. So the first place that John begins is he says, if you're listening to a teaching, how do you know somebody's a false prophet? And it's just like, do they deny the divinity of Jesus? So, how, so let me turn this. Assurance number one for those of us to have confidence on the day of judgment is that you acknowledge that Jesus is God. That he isn't just like another moral teacher. He's not just another good guy teaching us or encouraging us to be a better version of ourselves. But Jesus is God wrapped in human flesh who came 
uh, to live the life that you and I just could never live. And he died the death that we deserve to die. And he shed his blood on a cross as payment for our sins. And he died. And then he was bodily resurrected. He ascended into heaven. And now he is mediating on our behalf before God the Father. That, that's who he is. And so John just says, we're going to start like, you know, it's like Gene Hackman in Hoosiers. Like this is the basics. Like this is a ball. Like he just goes, hey, this is where we begin. Is acknowledging that Jesus is God. Now there are what we might call um, these categories. So we might call um, essentials and non-essentials or uh, primary and secondary issues. Paul goes into great lengths when he's writing to the Corinthians about secondary issues. In other words, matters of opinion, matters of conscience. As, as Christ followers, we have freedom in, the, in Christ. So what are some examples of that? Well, you know, should a Christian uh, drink alcohol or not? Uh, that's a secondary matter. It's a matter of opinion. Uh, should we uh, celebrate certain holidays? Uh, matters of con Those are not salvation dependent. But then there are some that are salvation dependent. We would call they're essential to the faith. And at the top of the list would be the divinity of Jesus. So he says, uh, do you acknowledge that Jesus is God? Now, here's why this is so important. Whenever you begin to uh, come across somebody that maybe has deconstructed their faith, and by the way, in August, we're going to do a series on deconstruction, reconstruction. And we're just going to kind of take a look at some of the biggest topics that people have maybe walked away from the faith in. But whenever you begin to look at somebody who has moved away from God, or here's the word, it is a trajectory hermeneutic, like a trajectory away from God, it almost always begins in a change of view in the personhood of Christ, like who Jesus is. John Wright goes on in verse four. He says, uh, but you, you, you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. That's one of the greatest verses, I think, not only in First John, but in all the New Testament. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I mean, if you've got the Holy Spirit, that is, that is greater than. And then he says in verse 5, those people belong to this world, so they speak from the world's viewpoint, and the world listens to them. But we belong to God, and those who know God listen to us. If they do not belong to God, they do not listen to us. Now he gets right at it, this last sentence. This is how we know. If somebody has the spirit of truth or the spirit of deception. So assurance number one is we acknowledge Jesus is God. Here's assurance two. The spirit of truth overrides the spirit of deception in our lives. Now, every single one of us need to recognize uh, who or what we are listening to. So if you are a follower, of, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, here, here's, here's what happens. Like if, you're, if it's like pre-conversion, there's no way you come to know God without the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. Like it is that still small voice. It is that conviction. I have never preached a sermon that led anybody to Jesus. The Holy Spirit has used words I've prepared to lead people to Jesus. So if you ever feel yourself like getting uncomfortable, like there's this like that kind of uh, like wrestling match, that internal kind of feeling, that, that quite possibly could be because the Holy Spirit is always speaking. The Holy Spirit is always speaking truth. So here's what John is saying is... Um, is the volume of the Holy Spirit's voice turned up enough to where you can hear it? Or is it turned down and you're listening to the spirit of deception? So uh, right now, all those things are happening like in the world in which we live. The Holy Spirit, um, here's what the Bible says, speaks truth. 
um, Satan is the father of lies. Um, the Holy Spirit reveals reality to us. Satan is the ninja of deception. He's really, really good at deceiving. Um, the Holy Spirit brings conviction into our lives, which is uncomfortable, but it's a good thing. It's for our good. Um, uh, Satan um, accuses. He's an accuser. How do you know the difference between the two? One leads to a repentance, a realignment with God and who you were made to be, and one just shames you to death. One just says, you haven't done just bad things. You are bad. That's the voice of an accuser. No hope. It is absolutely hopeless. Now, now here's the thing. We've got both these voices going on in the world, and you can't be passive. You'll listen to one over the other. The question is, who, who or what am I listening to? And here's just what I want you to at least crack the door open on. And I want to say this uh, as pastorally and as empathetically as I can. Um, because I hear it all the time, and, and not just as a pastor, but just as a human being. I just hear this all the time. Is that we live in a world of pain, in a world of brokenness. And nobody's immune from it. And have you noticed that oftentimes, and I, and I think that God allows us to wrestle with him. Just read the life of Job. God can handle it. It's okay. He can handle your questions. He can handle you being real. But one of the observations that I've just seen is oftentimes when life begins to fall apart or there's pain and suffering, have you noticed how quick we are to ask, uh, God, where are you? And how strangely Satan seems to be absent from the conversation. If he is the father of lies, if he is deceiving, if he is a roaring lion, as the Bible says, what makes us think that we're not going to get um, scratched a little, that he's gunning for us? See, there's a target on your back. And the question is, whose voice am I listening to in this world? The voice of a deceiver, the voice of the Holy Spirit. John is simply saying this. Do you recognize the Holy Spirit's voice when he speaks? It's kind of like, and the more time you spend with him, the more time you begin to recognize it. It's kind of like this. Um, there is a distinct difference in the way uh, I talk on the phone uh, with my wife or let's say um, the customer service representative. There's just a difference, right? It's like a difference in familiarity and tone. So like if I call the customer service representative, like they don't know me at all. They've never heard my voice. And so what are they doing? Uh, they're uh, trying to authenticate my identity. And so they say, can you tell me your address? Can you tell me your middle name? Can you give me the last four digits of your social? You know, and they're trying to like, uh, you know, authenticate through these other various means. When I call my wife, you know, she never once has ever said, hey, can you verify your last four digits of your social? <laughs> like, you know, like when I call my wife, here's how I, I usually, uh, you know, uh, will talk. I'll, I'll just be like, hey, it's me. And she's not like, who? You know, is it because, because we've spent a lot of time together. Th this is kind of the idea that John's kind of driving at. Have you spent enough time with the Holy Spirit that you recognize his voice and when you hear something that's a lie, like it fires off like a red flag. Like you're like, I, I, I know that that's not true. I know that that's false. Verse 7, John goes on and he, he says it again. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another. Why? Because that's just the nice thing to do? No. He gives a reason. For love comes from God. Like love is God's thing. God's the author of it. And anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God. For God is love. So here's assurance number three, right? Assurance number three is that you reflect the kind of love that God has shown you to other people. Now, right here is one of the only times that God is identified with one of his attributes. 
And notice that it doesn't say God is loving. It says God actually is love. He's, he's not saying the emotion of love is always God or that love is God's only attribute, but that love is actually to the core of his being. Theologians point out that this is possible because God is a trinity, which means that he is one being existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, so he has always existed in relationship with another, which is one of those things that if you think about it too long, your head explodes. But this is the nature of God. Well, what kind of love? Well, the love of God is a self-giving, self-sacrificing kind of love. And here's John's point. As he's saying, for those of us who are following after Jesus, that kind of love should be in us in the way that we treat other people. And if it's not, then there's no way that God is in us. I had a mentor say this to me years ago. He said, you know, don't you think that if we are saved by grace, that ought to make us gracious. And once again, there's this like tension around that. It's like, well, how gracious should we be? And when does, you know, grace cross the line into license? And, and then wh what about this over? Does this mean that we should never hold people accountable? There's, once again, John deals with tensions. And, the, and, the, and what's transformational is in the tension. And so John's going to go on to describe God's love because uh, the world wants to define love in a bunch of different ways. John's going to define God's love. And he's going to say it's more than just a feeling. It's more than just a sentiment. But it's something that gets translated into an action. And actually that action is what saved us. It is an action defined by grace. So he says this in verse 9. God showed like he didn't just tell, he showed how much he loved us. How? By sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So John says one of the defining characteristics of God's love, like the defining quality of his love, is the grace that he showed us through Jesus. So in a world that would say, well, you know, it's unloving to confront anyone, John says, no, actually God's love confronted the offense of our sin. That, that's real love. But he confronted it by sending his son as a sacrifice. And here's how Romans 5.8 puts it, while we were still sinners. I love that passage because in Romans 5.8, go back and read it for yourself later today, uh, Paul just kind of unpacks this and he says, listen, this is the kind of love that God has for us. He didn't like sit back and wait for us to feel sorry for our sins and then he forgave us. He made it possible for us to be forgiven without any guarantee that we would turn to him. That's pretty mind-blowing because I don't know about you, nobody operates that way. Like I, I, I will, uh, you know, do a service for you once the funds are in my bank account kind of a thing. And God sent his son first. And this is how Paul puts it in Romans 5. He says, you know, very rarely will somebody die for a good person. This is the idea that if I had to lay my life down for somebody, you know, there, that, that circle is very, very small. And so if I'm thinking about it, like if, if I was put into a position where I needed, if I laid my life down, other people would live, that circle is extremely small. Like I'm talking like, I don't know that any of you in this room would be in it. And I say that lovingly 
Y'all on your own, all right? So, but who would be in that circle, like, without even thinking about it? My wife and my kids. Like, I didn't even think about it. Like, for them, I would lay my life down. Now, the next layer, and he says in Romans 5.8, he goes, but for, you know, for, for an exceptionally good person, somebody might consider laying their life down. So I'd broaden that circle out a little bit and go, well, outside of my wife and kids, who would I be willing to lay my life down for? Man, you would have to be a saint. Like, we're talking, like, you'd have to be the one that's going to cure cancer, you know, or improve my golf game or something. Like, it would just be, like, like the circle, like, you'd have to, you know, be, like, prove, like, worthy of it, like, for me to lay my life down. And he goes, but, but here's what God did. While we were still in the midst, the darkest days of our rebellion and sin, God sent Jesus. He goes, that's how much God loves you. This idea that he would lay down his very life so that you would have a shot at reconciliation with him. That the creator God, after having been rejected by his creation, you know, he could have, you know, destroyed us and started all over. But he chose out of compassion to take on the penalty of our sin and suffer in our place. A king dying for unrepentant traitors. A creator dying for his creation. A betrayed lover offering himself as a sacrifice for the betrayer. Would any of us have done that? And God wasn't obligated to do it. He didn't have to do it. He wanted to do it. That, John says, that is the love of God. It is a self-sacrificing, lay my life down kind of love. And then he says in verse 11, dear friends. I just love the fact that he keeps saying this because he knows that what he's saying is kind of hard to hear. He's like, dear friends, dear friends, dear friends, dear friends. Since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. Now notice, he doesn't um, identify each other. It doesn't say we surely ought to love our family or we surely ought to love those people. He says each other, which means anyone and everyone, everybody that you lock eyes with. And then he says this in verse 12, nobody has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. That is just a fancy way of saying, even though nobody's ever seen God, people can see God in us by the way that we live our lives. Right now, that should be an urgent, red alert alarm for the church in this generation to hear because we live in such a day of confusion and pain and hypocrisy and people that have actually heard the gospel but they've never really seen it lived out because many who are following after Jesus they're not necessarily living what they say they believe or we say we believe in God but we're not very loving towards others and there's this dissonance between the two that is off-putting John says may God's love kind of come about in this full expression here's what this looks like that 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 there would be somebody who is really, really far from God. They don't believe uh, what the Bible teaches. Their, their values are about as different uh, as opposed to Christ-likeness as you could possibly get. And yet they meet you. They live next door to you. They work with you. They talk to you. They serve you coffee. And they say to you, I don't know what you, I don't know that I believe what you believe, but there is something so fundamentally different in you. What is that? That's what we should be aspiring to. It's this idea that Jesus has left us here as representatives and ambassadors, and it's hard. We're going to have to live in the tension. We live in a tension that, that of a world that hates God, and yet we are to lovingly engage with the world that hates the one we follow. 
So where do you draw the line and when do you speak up and when do you sit down? And, it, and once again, John's not going to solve this for us. He just says there's this tension that exists. I'm keenly aware of this tension as I seek as just one of the pastors, a temporary pastor, by the way. Like I, I will be here just for a certain number of years and then, you know, I'm serving right now in this generation. And as I try to steward the mission of this church, there is a tension between how much effort do we go in reaching people and how much effort do we take in growing people? It's evangelism and discipleship. It's growing wide and growing deep. And there's, it's, it's, it, it, it's, there seems to be a conflict, but there doesn't have to be. But I even know, like right now, like the longer you follow after Jesus or maybe the way that you're sort of wired up personality-wise, th there's probably one of those, when I say like, um, evangelism and discipleship, there's probably one of those you drift towards. And, and here's the thing, like the, the, the closer you are to the day of your conversion, you're probably really passionate about evangelism, especially if you didn't grow up in the church. Maybe you came to know Christ like as an adult later on. And it's just one of those things that's like you received the gift of God's grace. You knew what you were rescued from and you want all of your friends, family and coworkers to experience that same thing. You're all about evangelism. We've got to do whatever we can to reach people far from God. But then the longer that we follow after God, maybe the, the more we start to forget how amazing grace really is. And maybe we begin to kind of say, well, it's, it's, it's discipleship. You know, here's the thing. Those two things should never be pitted against each other. The best evangelistic efforts is discipleship. The best discipleship efforts leads to evangelism. We should be growing wide. Why? Because there are so many people that are hurting and hopeless that need to meet Jesus. But we should also be growing deep because uh, we need to grow a deep-seated root system because we live in a really, really challenging, painful, complicated world. I love what it says in the book of Jude. It says, snatch others from the fire, which tells me that we need to be close enough to flames that we smell a little like smoke. I want you to know that, um, that, that, we, that what kind of a church you're sitting in right now is that we want to manage those two tensions. We want to do anything and everything that we can to reach people who are as far from God as possible. And we want to remove anything that would be unnecessary to them coming to know Jesus. So uh, I do not wear a costume when I preach. I just wear what I wear on Monday. Why? Because I just want to be a human being relating to another human being. Uh, I uh, try to talk in, normally. I try not to have like a preacher voice where I'm just praying. Yeah, trying not to, that was my impression. I'm trying not to do any of that. I'm just trying to like actually talk the way I normally talk. Why? To try to not overcomplicate this thing. And I'm trying to take my cues after a savior that wrapped himself in human flesh and walked among those and looked at people in the eyes. And so as a church, we're gonna try to manage those couple of tensions. I had somebody reach out to me a couple of weeks ago and I had a really, really good conversation with them. They're heart was in the right place, but they were talking about this very thing. And one of the things that they said, they said, you know, it just kind of seems like all we ever talk about is reaching people far from God. And, you know, we need to emphasize the reverence of God and we need to emphasize faithfulness. And I don't disagree. Like I think all, once again, all those things are intention, but I, but I just told them, I said, yeah, but you know, we, we need to do whatever we can to reach people that are, uh, that are uh, apart from Christ uh, so that they can come to a saving faith. And they said, you know, I understand all that. I hear that. And then they just said this. They go, you know, I don't know. I just feel like I'm kind of burned out on the message of grace. I thought, wow. 
Like, I understand where we're at in that, but man, may we never lose the wonder of it. May we never lose the wonder of grace that we are in debt. I don't care how long you've been following after Jesus. We need it every single day. Like the air that we breathe. And right now, I think it's pretty safe to say that Christianity is really misrepresented in the world. And oftentimes, as Christians, we've given the world the wrong impression because of the way in which we've lived, the lack of love, the lack of grace, the lack of of alignment. And so I think that um, the only answer to that is once again to stand in the presence of Jesus and be awed by that. Be changed by that once again. Well, John goes on in verse 13, and he says, God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. How can we know that God's spirit lives in us? Uh, Well, um, this is exactly what Jesus was kind of driving at in Matthew chapter 7. He says that it's all about proximity. It's all about relationship. He says in verse 15, all who declare that Jesus is the son of God have God living in them and they live in God. And then in verse 16, he goes, we know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. That's the process of sanctification. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. That's the verse that this sermon title came from, by the way. We don't have to be afraid on the day of judgment. Judgment day does not need to be doomsday. But we can face him with confidence. Like how often whenever you hear about or think about judgment day, do you hear the word confidence in that, in that sentence? He goes, man, we can, on judgment day, we can stand before God in confidence. How? And he sums it all up with these last few words. Because we live like Jesus here in this world. So here's assurance number four, is that God's love drives out our fear. And now we are living like Jesus. How do we do that? Because we have the Holy Spirit living within us and we don't have to be afraid on judgment day. Our confidence is directly connected to how we live and interact with others in this world each day. So here's the question. How did Jesus live in this world? In the tension. Jesus' whole life was tension. Starting with, he was God confined to a human body. Talk about tension. He uh, was tempted in every way that you and I are, and yet he never sinned. Talk about tension. Uh, Jesus one time was accused of the religious elite, get this, as being a glutton and a drunkard, which to me means that he enjoyed good food and drink. They also accused him of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners, which meant that he hung out with really, really unrighteous people but he brought about transformation into their lives. And the only way to bring about transformation in this world is proximity. Um, So uh, there was a professor from Yale in the 1940s, a guy by the name of Richard Niebuhr, who gave a series of talks on how Christians have historically lived in the world and engaged in culture. And he gave five views. And I'm just gonna wrap up with these five views. And here's, here's what he's doing. He's just simply making observations. He's, he's describing these views. He's not necessarily prescribing any one of them, although I'm gonna prescribe one of them at the very end, right? So, and you'll probably be able to guess which one. But he just says, here's how Christians throughout history have kind of engaged in the culture in which we live. One would just be what we might call Christ above culture. 
Just the idea that we're just going to kind of live our lives thinking that the, the values that we have as Christians are superior to the values of the world. So let's create a new subculture within culture. This is when we turn the word Christian into an adjective. And so we have, you know, Christian music and Christian breath mints and you know, it's like, it's like, so, so we, it's like this holy huddle. Like, like we separate ourselves from the culture over here. Christ above culture. Another observation he made was um, Christ of culture. Just the idea that we just sort of blend in and there's really no distinguishable difference. We just kind of affirm everything in the culture. It's kind of like almost like a pantheistic view. And so this view would be like, hey, there's no restraints. Just enjoy everything the culture has to offer without hesitation. And obviously, you should be able to see, you know, some of the potential pitfalls in that one. The third would be Christ against culture. It's similar to Christ above culture, but instead of pulling away, Christ against culture runs in with picket signs and protests, declaring a culture war. And it very rarely ever brings about the, trans the kind of transformation that sticks. Here's number four, Christ and culture in paradox. So it's this idea of like, uh, we're sort of like operate like dual citizenship. Like we are citizens of heaven, but we are also citizens of this world. You know, we act like a Christian on Sunday, but not during the week. We're sort of straddling the fence as the t-shirt puts it. I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. It's that whole idea of like, I'm just kind of like, uh, I, I'm, I'm a chameleon. I'll change by my surroundings. And then here's the fifth view. Christ transforming culture. And that would be the one that I would advocate for, the one that I desire, the one that I want our church to be. It's where Jesus stepped into this world. He didn't pull away. He didn't acclimate to. He came into this world to rescue us, to set his love and affection upon us, to change us and to transform us. You've heard me say this before, that Jesus loves you right where you are. If you are a tax collector up in a tree or a woman at a well so far from him, he will pursue you and run after you. But he loves you so much, he'll never leave you as you are. The word is transformation. He brings about a transformation within and in order for that to happen, he's gotta get close. And now as Christ followers, that same spirit should be in us. And now he sends us out. This is a wild thought to be his representatives in the world. Jesus would say to the disciples, hey, I'm getting ready to leave. I'm going back to the Father. And they didn't want him to go. And Jesus said, don't worry, I'm sending my Holy Spirit to be with you. Greater is he that is in you than for me to be with you. And we have that same Holy Spirit as well. Does that mean that you still struggle? Absolutely, it means you still struggle. Here's the difference, you're honest about it. Does it mean that you still have questions of God? Yes, but it means that you can be open about that. You can drop the mask and be authentic. And right now, more than ever, there is a world that needs to not only hear and, and hear the reinforcement of the truth of the gospel, they need to see people that have actually believed it, that have actually been in close proximity with Jesus and whose lives have been transformed by him so that the world looks at you and goes, I don't know that I believe what you believe, but there's something so distinctly different than you. What is it? What is it? And that is what brings about the transformation in our lives to where we can stand on the day of judgment and look our heavenly father in the eyes with confidence because of how we lived Father, we come to you right now. 
And we long to hear the words like, well done, like well done, good and faithful servant. And and I know there's gonna be a lot of people that can relate to me when I say this. It kind of feels like the longer I live, the more it feels like I'm in the movie, The Hunger Games, where people are just getting picked off left and right. And how can we remain faithful to the end? We know that that comes in proximity to you. But another way in which that happens is through worship. And so God, right now, for, for those who are listening to my voice that would call themselves Christians, would call themselves Christ followers, I just pray right now that by your spirit, you would bring to mind anything that we need to bring into realignment with your spirit. The word for that is just repentance. And by your grace, you give us the opportunity to do that on a regular basis, just to just call to mind, hey, here's something that needs to be brought into realignment so that we can live authentic lives for this watching world. God, if there's somebody here today Maybe they've never heard any of this explained this way. Maybe they just thought that this was morality or religion or just check the boxes, but they never really knew that it was a relationship with Jesus. I pray today that if they are sensing that still small voice of the Holy Spirit, just slightly making them uncomfortable, that they would respond, that they would surrender their life to you right where they are, right where they're seated, that they would just declare that you are Lord and Savior, that they would ask for forgiveness of sin and confess that to you and that, you, that they know that, that you've promised that you would put your spirit into them and change them. The word is conversion, new eyes to see. God, thank you for that grace. May we never get burned out on it because we need it. We ask this in Jesus' name and everybody says,